You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. The reclaims all water to an archaeologist, what are the better explanations out there? We are now on episode 55. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology, coming to you with a broken hand. And of course, I did break uh, the finger bones in my right hand, making typing a bit of a challenge, I have to admit. So this time we have to dip into one of those backup episodes that I've created in the past for, well, not Maybe this particular reason, but for similar reasons. So today we will not talk about the number one pyramid on our top 10 list from ancient aliens. No, we will talk about giants. Yes, those creatures who is claimed to have been found uh, well on the very suspicious website and in Facebook posts with clearly AI-generated pictures. And there's particular Three things we will talk about, the Lovelock Giants, the San Diego Giant, and my favorite archaeological hoax, the Cardiff Giant. Now remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. And if you want to support the show, you can do that either with money, I will tell you how you do that later in the episode, or you give a five-star review anywhere you can. We also sell t-shirts now, check those out. But uh, well, that's all the preparations we need, I think. So let's dig into the episode. So we will talk about giants here. And why? Well, it all really start or we were destined to talk about giants. We already have a couple of times, but I wanted to get deeper into the giant lore just a little bit. And it all started with a post that I stumbled upon on, I think it was Instagram. Yeah. And I think it really demonstrates the fascination and how everybody can quite easily be fooled. And that's why we maybe shouldn't be so um, aggressive when we talk to uh, the believers of these things. Everybody can be duped, tricked and fooled while we can take steps to make it harder for us to be all those things. Things can obviously into the crack. But as I mentioned, I was looking at Instagram. I follow a couple of archaeologists there. On top of all the pseudo-archaeological stuff that I also encounter. But then I suddenly see a picture of one of those famous giants. And I'm sure that you have seen it if you think about it. It's what is supposed to be a mummified remain of a Native American uh, giant. And it has a loincloth. It stands in a wooden box with one arm over his tomb. And besides stands two uh, 18th century dressed gentlemen. One imitating how the mummy stands and one uh, just stands there. Looks slightly annoyed. And uh, the skull on this uh, mummy giant is uh, apish like it looks like your stereotypical idea of um, 
en neandertal as presented through uh, a 18th or 19th century lens. And there's a couple of other pictures there tying to these type of themes. And the caption were written... For those who know that I worked with the Paiute Indians in Northern California, you'll know that I can't tell you the stories I was told on the reservation. However... Now you get to know a little bit of their stories of giants in this link. And the link is to a clickbait site. I love that these 10-foot giants were discovered, if for nothing else, to show that pirate lore, quotation mark, of the Lovelock giants are not just lore. This is from a working archaeologist, which made everything a bit more problematic from my end. And I went to the article, I looked at it, it's your classical Lovelock cave giant uh, mythological telling that we will get to in just a moment. But the pictures isn't really connected to Lovelock. But this post demonstrates on how a working professional can easily be fooled by myth, legends and uh, internet lore, so to say, because they want to believe in these type of things. So what is this Lovelock cave then? Well, as the story goes, well, at least online, it's uh, the home for a cannibalistic race of uh, giants who, according to these legends, were hunting the Paiutes and ate their children and women and all of that. And that what's interesting in this story is that it's claimed that we have found these giant remains and that they are now either stowed away in the Smithsonian Institute or hidden away somewhere. We also have an instance where David Childress goes to an unknown museum and um, picks out what he claims is giant skulls, but clearly it's just normal humans. And then he, well, mistreat those uh, human remains quite severely on camera. But uh, that's a different story. So the question here is, of course, is there any truth to this? And the answer is yes and no. The origin for this story comes from a book published in 1882 by Sarah Winnebuka Hopkins. And Sarah is one of the first known indigenous authors that was actually published. But in 1882, she published a novel called Life Among the Paiutes, Their Wrongs and Claims. And we will note here that the story is quite different from what we hear if we would go online and read or go to YouTube and listen or, well, podcast, whatever you want to do. So the whole story starts with... Among the tradition of our people is one of a small tribe of barbarians who used to live along the Humboldt River. It was many hundred years ago. They used to waylay my people and kill and eat them. They would dig large holes in our trails at night and if any of our people traveled at night, which they did, for they were afraid of these barbarous people, they would oftentimes fall into these holes. That tribe would even eat their own dead. Yes, they would even come and dig up our dead after they were buried and they would carry them off and eat them. So here is the cannibalistic part of it. and. Sarah goes on and describes the conflict they have with this tribe of barbarians. But it is important to note that they never claim that these are giants or larger than men. In fact, they claim that they are just like the Paiutes. 
except they are barbarians. They are uh, savages. She even writes, My people would ask them if they would be like us and not eat people like coyotes or beasts. They talk the same language, but they would not give up. And she goes on and describes the war that they have and that they at last managed to push this barbarian tribe into a cave. And then they fill this cave with wood and other stuff and they set it on fire. But the Paiutes are trying to reach out a hand to save them, give them a way out. She wrote, We called out to them as loud as we could. Will you give up? Say so and you will not die. But no answer came. Then they all left the place. So again, no mention of giants, but they were cannibals. They were killed. And she go on to describe that uh, this tribe was called people eaters because, you know, they ate people. <laughs> and that the Paiutes, Sarah Vinamukas people who had killed them, the other tribes, neighboring tribes would go on and call them Seidukara, which she claim means conquer or enemy. And then she goes on trying to explain why they are really called Paiutes today when their real name is Seidukara. And it's also often, um, if you go online trying to look this up, you will see that these um, giant cannibals are often referred to as uh, Siteka. So it seems to be a, some sort of bastardization of Sarah Vinamukka's uh, writing here, because among the stories, among the Paiutes and other Native American tribes in the area, the name Siteka is um, not present. It's only in later retelling on very suspicious website we find this name. But again, it's most likely lifted from Seidu Kara. And often in these tellings, the giants have red hair. And this is also lifted from Sarah Vinamukka's account. She write quote, my people say that the tribe we exterminated had reddish hair. I have some of their hair which have been handed down from father to son. I have a dress which have been in our family for great many years trimmed with this reddish hair. I am going to wear it at some time when I lecture. So again, that these giants having red hair is again a callback to Sarah's account. That again isn't about giants. Now, is there any archaeological remains from the Lovelock cave? Well, it is. And if we go to Nevada and the area called Humboldt Sink, we can actually find this rather small cave. Once upon a time, it was part of Lake Lahoton, but that was some 13,000 years ago. In this cave, there has been found a lot and lot of archaeological remains. And the habitation seemed to go back some 4,000 years. And today we refer to the people living in the cave and in that particular area for the Lovelock culture to make things easier. So the area has been inhabited for 4,000 years. And we also have one of the earliest uh, duck decoys found in this cave. And it was found in 1911 by a couple of guana miners or farmers. So they were digging guano out of the cave and they quickly started to find a lot of Native American artifacts. And it was to a point where they just threw both human remains, as it turned out, and the artifacts just 
out on the, well, dump they had created outside of the K-Bot. During 1912, the artifacts just, it was too much in the layer that they had hit, so they decided to go and tell the local museum and give the cave over to them because it wasn't really worth it with all the artifacts that they found. They wanted the guano, but uh, it was more artifacts than guano at this point. So the excavation was performed by Levelin L. Loud and M. R. Harrington, who published their found in a 1929 publication called The Lovelock Cave. And this publication is available online, but uh, in it we can learn a bit more about what the real excavation was, what they found, and uh, everything else. And we also learn how the cave was treated before the archaeologist took over the excavation. So for example, they write, quote, It would appear from a study of the skeletal material brought to the museum that the Guana crew found at least 13 individuals. The remains were salvaged from the hillside refuse pile left by the Guana crew. So they basically, again, tossed the human remains that they found out on the refuse pile. Also might show a little bit about their view about these individuals that they encountered when they were digging but another discussion and they go on and in total they write that uh, quote the full number of individuals found by the writer in the cave is estimated to be about 32 making all told at least 45 individuals deposit in the cave they go on to describe some of these remains that they found and several were actually mummies with hair and other garments still on them. They note in its report that some of these remains actually had red hair. But before you start to run out yelling that giants are real, hold on for a moment. Red hair among archaeological remains isn't that unusual, especially in locations where they often have black or dark hair. You see, there is an interesting uh, process that can happen in human hair that they can change the color from black to red. And this is due to different chemicals and processes. So it's about the pigments that we have within the hair that decays. But how about this um, cannibal claim about the cave? Is there any truth to this? Well, again, if we go back to um, the Loudon Harrington publication, we do find a mention of cannibalism. So they write, quote, Three human bones found near the surface in lot 7, just back of the great fallen rock blocking the mouth of the cave. These had been split to extract the marrow as animal bones were split and probably indicate cannibalism during famine. These were the only artificially split human bones found during all our digging in the cave. So the claim goes back to three bones that were found that might indicate that the marrow was extracted by people. But again, might and was is not necessarily the same thing here, but there is some truth to this claim. So we have people living here around the time the Paiutes would enter the area and they could have thought the story can be based in real history to some extent as usual. It seems as there might have been cannibalism 
we have some indications of red hair. So it might be possible that some part of this oral tradition actually is based in real history, which is fascinating in itself. I don't need to add these giant claims. But when we now are back on the giant part of this whole story, where did it originate from? Well, it goes back to Loudon Harrington, most likely, most likely. So in the appendix in their 1929 report, they did some uh, interviews with um, guano um, miners that uh, first encountered um, Native American artifacts within the cave. And in the interview with uh, James H. Art in regard to his first excavation in uh, Lovelock Cave or first mining operation or what we should call it. In this interview, he says, quote, In the south end of the cave, about 20 feet deep, we unearthed some skeletons. In the north central part of the cave, about four feet deep, was a striking looking body of a man, six feet, six inches tall. His body was mummified and his hair was distinctly red. There was a gray rope around his neck with a knot under his left ear. The rope was about eight feet long. The feet were bound together from the ankle to above the knees with stout rope. The mummification was complete except for a part of the abandonment. The other mummies all had red hair. I think there were either four or five. Those appeared to be women who were small. Something like a Japanese woman in height. This was not altogether due to the shrinking of the bodies in mummifying because the man was, quote, a giant, end quote. So there we have the giant claim, the origin of the giant in uh, Lovelock Cave. And I mean, as someone who is uh, six feet four inches or 195 centimeters. I wouldn't say that 198 or whatever it is in uh, metrics is giantism. I mean, large, sure, giant. I mean, not really. (laughs) Or am I a giant? Will I have some existential crisis over here now? No, but he was tall, of course. Tall, but um, not really what I would describe a giant. So while there are some truth to the Paiute oral tradition, we need to look at the evidence when we evaluate this history. And while Sarah probably wrote down a much earlier version, the stories that go around now might be influenced by modern retellings of the history. And this type of story seemed to have pop up somewhere in the 1970s when you try to look for terms giant and lovelock in different resources in libraries and databases. We don't see those two terms together until the 1970s and we don't see any reports mentioning it in 1940, 50 or 60. Clearly this is a modern retelling based on misrepresenting the evidence that we actually have from the cave. And when we look back, the real story of the cave is much more interesting and fascinating than the made-up giants because they didn't exist. Unfortunately, this six, six foot, six inches tall mummy wasn't preserved, it seems like. I don't find it in the material that they're reporting. So most likely it went out on the garbage tip and it's one of these unidentified remains that um, they describe earlier in the report. But that's a whole mystery of the Lovelock giant. 
And then we have the second part of this post that I mentioned in the start, the picture. The giant put in the box with the two uh, 19th century gentlemen on either side of it. And I think you have seen it as I mentioned. So again, this is not from Lovelock. It has nothing to do with Lovelock. It is um, what's referred to as the San Diego giant. And when it comes to giants and pictures, they have for a very long time been, um, uh, well, never-ending source for hoaxes. And if you go online looking for giants, you will find a lot of hoax pictures. Some dating back to the 19th century, some go back to early 2000, and I can kind of get a bit nostalgic when I look at those old 2000 photoshopped pictures of giants, because, well, you see two humans with a huge skull in the center, and you can clearly, clearly see that this is old Photoshop. I mean, it screams of it, but back then, I mean, it looked quite real people already was talking about well how will we be able to differentiate between photoshop pictures and this but now you clearly can see that yeah it is photoshop compare that to the pictures we have now which really getting dangerously good in uh, in the quality and how they look real with AI and all of this starting to make all of this a lot harder if you know what you're looking at and have a good eye for photos you kind of can point out some issues in the pictures but you kind of have to sit like a (laughs) moon landing denier oh that shadow goes the wrong direction i mean it, it will make things a lot harder to spot right off the start which is sad but again the giant hoax stuff goes back to 1800 and this san diego giant it was proven to be a hoax in 1908. So in 1908, on June 7th, the Salt Lake Tribune, Sunday morning edition, published an article called Sheet and Hoaxes Recalled by National Gallery Forgeries. And it goes through different uh, hoaxes that had been discovered, one of which is this picture that we have uh, talked a little bit. And The portion about the San Diego start as, quote, The mummy of the tallest human giant who ever lived was being barked by a sideshow man at Atlantic Exposition while a number of these Smithsonian scientists were there. They asked permission to examine it and when uh, consent was given, applied their tapes and found it measured 8 feet 4 inches from crown to heel. The giant had been found in a cave near San Diego, California by a party of prospectors, according to the exhibitor. Over the head were the remains of a leather hood, which appeared to have been part of a shroud. Worn teeth were visible in the mouth and the outlines of the ribs were plain to see through the skin. The elongated, emaciated body stood erect in a great narrow coffin, 10 feet long. The exhibitor agreed to sell it for 500 pounds to the Smithsonian, which dispatched Lucas to the scene. He, Professor W. J. McGee and others made a careful test. A piece of the giant's dried skin was removed and when tested in the chemical laboratory at the Smithsonian was found to be gelatin. Professor McGee is shown on the left of the giant in the accompanying picture and the exhibitor was perfectly innocent of the fraud is shown 
on its right. So that's the story of the San Diego giant. And even if it's claimed to be all sorts of giant, it was back then already known to be a elaborate hoax. And it was not the only, only hoax of the time. The next session of the same giant deals with um, with the Cardiff giant, already then known to actually be a hoax. Welcome, adventurers, to a unique podcast journey where the lines between the mystical and historical blur. Join us in the podcast and my travel where fantasy meets reality in the most unexpected of ways. Imagine a world where archaeologists aren't just digging through the earth, but through the layers of magic and mystery. Meet Ash and Tilly, your fearless guides, armed with nothing but their trusty travels and a wealth of archaeological knowledge, theory, and experience. They are on a quest to explore uncharted territories where the wonders of the past intertwine with the fantastical. Each new episode takes you through thrilling new worlds, bringing with magic, mayhem, and mind-boggling discoveries. Have you ever wondered what to do if you find vampire teeth in a Bronze Age burial? Or ponder the possibility of sampling ectoplasm? And what about studying the remains of dragons? How would one even begin to approach such a task? Ash and Tilly don't just navigate these questions alone. They are joined by a cater of specialist guests, adding depth and insight into every mystical discovery. Together, they are not just uncovering artifacts. They are unraveling the mysteries of a realm, where archaeology and mythology collide. So if you're curious to find out if fantasy really is so far from reality, and if you're eager to delve into the untold stories where the past meets the paranormal, and my travel is your ticket to an extraordinary adventure. Subscribe now. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at the archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com. Unearth the secrets of the past and explore the realms where fantasy and archaeology intertwine. Join and my trouble as they pave the way through the unknown, one episode at a time. So let's talk a little bit about the Cardiff giant then. And it's an interesting tale that I think can give some um, insight to uh, our current milieu or maybe show us that nothing haven't really changed in the last hundred years or so. But how the giant got so popular can be explained by a couple of things, I think. So first of all, we have the religious aspect. During this time, it was quite common to try to prove the Bible as literal fact. And since there are giants in the Bible, the most well-known giant in the Bible might be Goliath of Gotha who was slain by David in 1 Samuel. And it was quite common in America during this time uh, to claim that they have found giants both as a evidence for, well, biblical um, literacy. And we see this, for example, in the early 1700s with Cotton Maher, who um, claimed to have um, the remains of sinful giants in America. We also see it later in time, these claims about giants. And there's, again, both the religious aspect, but also a sort of, sort of nationalistic idea 
The myth about giants in America ties quite closely into the idea that white people had settled America before the indigenous people. Enhancing the claim to the land that the white settlers wanted to use as a way to justify their settling and relocation of the Native Americans. It still to some extent lives uh, today and I think that um, that Edward Watts uh, make a good case for this in his book Colonizing the Past. So these legendary voyages of uh, Welsh, the Vikings, uh, all of that ties into the myth about the American giants being white and we saw that kind of in the Lovelock case again they are specified to having red hair who has red hair well the white people so it, it ties in together this religious aspect and the notion that uh, the white settlers had uh, a claim to the land that they were settling that um, was uh, from a past that was uh, more ancient than the Native Americans have. So let's talk a bit closer about the Cardiff Giants specifically. And if you want to learn even more, I highly recommend Scott Tibble's book about this, a Colossal Hoax, published in 2009, where he goes into great details about all the different aspects about the Giants. But we will have a short introduction here. So the main creator of this hoax was a cigar manufacturer from uh, Binghamton, New York, named George Hull. And the whole story seemed to start in 1866, where according to Hull, he were visiting his sister's house in Iowa. Well, there he got into an argument somehow with a Methodist uh, minister. And Hall was, well, as Professor Fader puts it, a devout atheist, pun intended, according to himself. <laughs> but they started to talk about, well, the, all the myth and legends in the Bible. And, and afterward, Hall is uh, supposedly going to bed and laying awake, wondering, quote, Why People would believe those remarkable stories in the Bible about giants when I suddenly thought of making a stone giant and passing it off as a petrified man. And some will paint Hall as someone who wants to thumbing his nose towards the religious establishment, trying to make the religious people look like fools and show them that their beliefs are just fairytale stories. And others paint him more as an opportunistic fellow who just were in it for the money and I'm not sure really what it is but if we think about how much money he actually made on the Cardiff Giant I would suspect it's more about the latter than the former even though he might have had this thumbing of nose kind of approach initially but in June Hall purchased an acre of land in Iowa and there he placed a large gypsum stone block and he hired a artist who went about to try to create this um, giant petrified man. And Hall seems to have a lot of input um, on the statue, maybe because it was kind of modeled after Hall himself. Might explain why the, well, 
male member on the statue has the proportion it have, but speculation is on my side there. But after a bit more input and some, uh, some remodeling of the statue, removing hair, he also had a beer like George Hall in the beginning. And when it was done, he still wasn't really satisfied to make the statue look even older. Hall is supposed to have taken, a, well, basically a spiked board. He took a piece of wood, hammered some knitting needles through it, and then went to town on the statue, probably surprising the poor artist um, something immensely. And then he also started to pour acid on the statue to get this old-timey uh, look on the statue. And then he uh, got a wooden box, wrapped it up, and uh, made more people's for secrecy, and sent it to his relative uh, Stub Neville who then in uh, secrecy buried the statue on his land. And then they waited. Not very long, but, you know, enough so people might forget that Mr. Neville got a <laughs> several meter long, large wooden box that somehow just disappeared all of a sudden in the night. But yeah, so on a Saturday in October, to be precise, October 16, in 1869, Stubb Neville hired some workers to dig a well on his land. And it didn't take too long for them to stumble upon this uh, petrified human, and they seemed to have found the face first. And Neville seemed to have been a great choice to include in this um, post because he seemed to be a quite good actor. He's taking his time, he's playing reluctance, so for example, he don't really put up a tent to sell tickets until other people start to push him to do this. Oh, you should show it to people, you should, you know, take some ticket money, and then he goes, and he even suggests in the beginning to the papers that he maybe should just fill it out and just forget about it because it's such a hassle and all of this. So he seems to be a good actor and a good choice to include in your hoax. And in the paper, there's a lot of speculation and some are more skeptical than others. For example, the Fort Wayne Gazette wrote on October 27th, quote, The discovery near Syracuse continues to excite immense interest and the question petrified or sculpture is being vigorously debated. Rev E. Owen of the city who visited his giant ship yesterday confirms our statement in every particular and addition to the measurement we gave states that the figure measures 27 inches around the neck and the depth of the head is 19 inches. He informs us that the head is remarkably well-shaped one but presents no appearance of hair. It is the opinion of Mr. Owen and indeed most scientific men who have given their investigation that it is a petrified human body. And the Fort Wayne Gazette goes on to saying that um, the well which Mr. Neville was intending to dig was to have been shallow excavation where the water would naturally gather for the purpose of watering his cattle. The trench dug out is about four feet deep. The soil appears to have been washed in around and above the statue from the high ground surrounding the place and is a mixture of sand, muck and clay. The Aegean country is filled with rumors which insinuate that Mr. Neville was in collusion with parties who seek to impose upon and humbug the public. 
his good character, the circumstances of the discovery and the evidence open to the public scrutiny contradict these rumors. So some paper seems to be um, well more lenient to this being a real thing, helping to propel the story into the minds of people. And then we have some a bit more skeptical papers for example harper's weekly who in december of 1869 wrote an article on the cardiff giant but they have an article that is a bit more skeptical and in some cases as you will see a bit more tongue-in-cheek and harper's weekly talk about uh dr boyton who was on the site and in investigated the giant and at first he seemed to believe that this is a real thing and Dr. Boyton seems to initially claim that this is a statue of a Caucasian man who is finally cut and all of this and he suggested it might be carved by Jesuits who dwelt in the valley between 1520 and 1760. He then goes back and make a more, well, careful and thorough investigation. And he then start to realize that it is made out of gypsum and uh, must therefore be of a bit more recent origin. Gypsum is quite fragile and uh, wouldn't really survive being down in the ground for extended time period without being really and dr boyton wrote to professor spencer of the smithsonian institute that uh, quote i have stated that i thought his origin would not carry us back over 300 years but i am not certain that the known principles of chemistry will justify me in asserting that the period between his burial and resurrection was over three years. Its antiquated appearance have been produced not by abrasion, as many have said, but by dissolving action of water, which I think could have been accomplished in a few months. A more careful and accurate calculation, admitting the possible chance of some undiscovered error creeping into the calculation, may show that the burial to have taken place about 370 or 371 days ago as it may happen between two days. And then we come to the part I kind of like about this article written by this um, journalist. Towards the end of the article, the journalist wrote, A recent theory has been started that it is a cast iron figure covered with a coating of cement. The head, it is said, gives a ringing sound when struck like that of a hollow metallic body. I kind of like that they claim that the statue has no brain and it kind of hints that those believing in this, well, might have been a little bit fooled by this whole ordeal. But Neville and Hall is making quite the big bucks on uh, this statue and the entrance fee that they're charging to see it on Mr. Neville's land in the tent that he later set up under the influence of other people again. And Dr. Fader mentioned in his book, uh, Frost Myths and Mysteries, that it seems as they collected some $7,000 in admission fees, which um, is equal to around 100000 dollars in modern currency so again there's quite a financial boon to all of this that we need to kind of account for and kind of explain why why they did the hoax all in all it seems as during its time in cardiff on neville's land there was some there was 32 
thousand people coming to visit the Cardiff giant. And with giant dollar signs in their eyes, they realize that Cardiff is a little bit off from the main path and then decide to move the statue to, or statue, the petrified man, the giant, to, <laughs> to Syracuse to make it more accessible to people. And by this time, Mr. Neville and, well, also Hall to some extent, had gotten people who had bought in to the giant, so they paid a portion so they could own it. So a syndicate of Syracuse businessmen and uh, other professional people went together and paid roughly $37,000 to own three quarters of the statue. And with the better location in Syracuse, they get even more people coming to see the giant. All in all, some 60,000 people comes to view the giant. And even the famous circus entrepreneur P.T. Barnum came there in attempt to buying the statue. An offer that, uh, according to Ithaca Daily, was supposed to be some $60,000 in uh, that time's uh, currency. And P.T. Barnum didn't really want to it permanently he just wanted to borrow it for about three months but pt barnum was turned down by the syndicate and mr neville and in uh, well relation also george hall but pt barnum was not um, too sad about it he um, went back to his circus and um, took a moment to think and came up with a brilliant idea if he can't buy the giant well, he makes his own giant and just plays it down the street with a sign saying, come and view the real Cardiff giant. So you had this time where there were several giants and Peter Barnum was not the only person doing this. This kind of became an epidemic with people making their own giants, putting them on displaying as the real giant or a real petrified man. So you had this weird competition between the real, real Cardiff giant who was created by Hall and the real fake giant by P.T. Barnum, all claiming it is the real petrified man. But this would not last forever because after some time, Mr. Hall got them, well, his conscience started to wear on him and in December 1869 he admitted to all of this being a hoax. It did not stop him to create more giants in the future but he couldn't really get the same attention as this initial Cardiff giant. Fellow archaeology lovers, science nerd and history enthusiast, have you ever dreamt of showcasing your passion for our history and science? Dig no further. Welcome to the official merchandise store for your favorite podcast, Digging Up Ancient Aliens. Embark on a journey through time with our exclusive collection. Wrap yourself in the mysteries of the past with a range of themed shirts, mugs and apparel. Each piece tells a story about your passions and podcast preference. And for the devoted archaeology aficionados, unveil our latest treasure, the Archaeology Mafia t-shirt. 
It is more than just apparel. It's a statement, a tribute to those who dig deeper, question the unknown and unravel the secrets of our ancestors. These are not just merchandise, they are future relics from a time yet to be fully understood. Symbols of your dedication to unveiling the truth behind ancient aliens and the real wonders of our past. Join the crew of Digging Up Ancient Aliens, wear your curiosity, flaunt your knowledge and join the Archaeology Mafia. Visit our store now and you will get an offer you can't refuse. Let's keep the spirit of exploration alive. Log on to diggingupancientaliens.com slash store and grab your piece of history. Remember, the past is always present. And I think he kind of realized that he couldn't keep this jig up forever because, well, scientists were starting to realize that this wasn't really a petrified man. And as we noticed from... Harper Weekly, there was concerns that this was not very old. And as, the, and as Dr. Boyton mentioned, the gypsum was uh, too fragile to be in the ground for too long. And, and we also have um, Frank Baum, the author of Wizard of Oz, writing a bit of a satirical, <laughs> satirical uh, poems about a giant and Mark Twain write a novel about a giant. So, I mean, it was in the public quite, uh, quite established that it most likely was a fraud. It didn't stop people from still believing it, which make it tying into what we see Today we have a lot of professionals, a lot of experts, we have science, we have a lot of evidence to show that giants were probably not real. It's most likely either misinterpreted animal remains or based on faulty exemption from partial human remains. So for example, if you measure the human femur, you can kind of calculate the height of the individual that you're looking at, but it requires that you have the complete bone. If you're working with fragments, things can be a bit uncertain, and this is what we see in most of these giant cases. People who is looking at insufficient data and making conclusions based on this insufficient data. And then we also have instances where people have measured people lay as they were found in the ground. So if you bury someone, they will appear to be taller when you excavate them because things kind of move around. And when ligaments, flesh and all of that decompose, things kind of move away from each other. So measuring uh, human remains as they lay in their grave isn't a great way to calculate the individual's height. But this isn't really about evidence. It is about belief in the end. As we see today and then, even if Hall came out saying, this is a hoax, I made this up. It is a nude version of me that you're looking at. People didn't believe it. They still believed that the Cardiff giants were real because they wanted it to be real, because it fit within their idea of the world, the Bible being true, or white people were living in America before the Native American. The reasons can be several and multiple, but it doesn't really change their belief, this. And just as we see today, and as we see with the post I started this whole exploration with, it doesn't really matter if you're presented with evidence, your belief will, in most cases, take priority because 
it is hard to change one's belief. Something we need to have in mind when we discuss this with believers. We need to view it as it being part of a religious cult in a sense. That it's not just presenting fact and everything will be sorted out for some. That might be the way out of this. But for the majority, we kind of have to approach them as individual, different. And it's a slow process that no podcast can really (laughs) solve like that, unfortunately. But it might give you some uh, help approaching family members or workplace um, acquaintances or people you meet and give a bit of understanding on what they are thinking, how they're thinking it, and how you can approach them, both with the facts themselves and with a bit of humanity, asking questions, approach them and discuss it and it might help them get out of this uh, rabbit hole. But that's it. Giants are not real, have not been real, and uh, all of the giants you usually find online is just hoaxes. And there we have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode on giants, and hopefully we will be able to conclude our pyramid (laughs) exploration next time. As usual, sources, resources, and further reading suggestions is on the website. And if you want to support the show, that can be done by either telling your friends about it, share an episode with them, tell them to listen to your favorite episode, and get them involved into uh, the world of podcasting. If you want to more directly support the show, it can be done financially by becoming a patron member over at patreon.com slash diggingupancientaliens. And if you don't want to support the show through Patreon, we also have a membership thing going on where you get the same bonuses, basically. And you can find the member portal at diggingupancientaliens.com members. We also have a merch store if you want to get some cool-looking uh, t-shirts or mugs. And if you want more skeptical content or archaeology content, check out the archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com where you find a bunch of other shows to fill your ear holes with and on that note i will bid farewell go back and rest my arm a bit and hopefully i will be back to my old health shortly sandra martelor created the intro music and the outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Foliehat. until next time keep shoveling that science
Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 